1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking to Dr. Alex Ketchum about their new book, Engage in Public Scholarship A Guide on Feminist and Accessible Communication. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. I am so glad that you're here and we get to talk about um, your wisdom on how we can better engage in public scholarship and make it more feminist and accessible. But before we dive into that, Will you please tell us about yourself? Definitely. So
1: since 2018, I've been the faculty lecturer at McGill University's Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies. I'm a historian and feminist studies scholar. I've written two books. One of them we're going to talk about today, Engage, and the other book I wrote is called Ingredients for Revolution, and it's a history of feminist restaurants. I run the Just Feminist Tech and Scholarship Lab at McGill University, and I'm also the director and organizer of the speaker and workshop series, Disrupting Disruptions, the Feminist Accessible Publishing, Communications, and Technology speaker and workshop series.
0: One thing I'd love to ask my guests is um, if they'll share a bit about their own journey through higher ed. When you were choosing what you wanted to do at college and when you were thinking about going to grad school, can you take us back inside your mindset there? And were you imagining where you ended up now? Oh, I definitely
1: didn't imagine ending up here at all. I would say that my path was a bit winding. In I went to high school, thought I would go to university, which I did. I went to Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, where you have a lot of freedom over the classes you take. And I tried out a lot of different things. I thought maybe I'd do environmental architecture at one point. I thought I would do religious studies. I thought I would do history and then feminist studies. I took a lot of art classes and I ended up settling on majoring in feminist studies. And I was really interested in my history courses. Then I ended up going into graduate school for a history and gender studies program at McGill University Decided to stay there and do my PhD because I got funding. And then I've been at McGill since finishing as well as the faculty lecturer. So I didn't expect it. I didn't grow up in an academic family. I'm the first woman in my family to get a bachelor's degree, not even to say like a master's or a PhD. So for me, it was always really important to make what I was learning in school available to my family. So that kind of led me to the work that I've done with this book, Engage in Public Scholarship, because I always wanted to share those um, things that I was learning and working on and researching with people that weren't necessarily part of academia.
0: Was it a linear path for you or did you take any detours between college
1: and grad school? I went straight through because I wanted to move to Canada. And so one of the fastest ways to change countries was to go straight to grad school. Um, and I made that choice for both uh, educational and personal reasons at the time. But I was really actually debating between becoming a kayak guide in either Alaska or Norway or going to grad school. So my life could have turned out really differently had I uh, not been accepted to that master's program.
0: I saw a small thing in your bio about founding an organic farm.
1: Mm, Yeah. So I was, I wasn't the founder of the farm, but I was really involved in organizing Wesleyan University's uh, student-run organic farm longline. So it was kind of collectively run, but, um, Related to that work, I also started and founded the Living Community Farmhouse. So Wesleyan has these places where students can basically have themed houses that they run, and it's kind of part of the campus housing. And so it was a food politics based house. And so, yeah, my work around the farm and that food politics house was really what actually impacted a lot of my research path through my kind of other project, the feminist restaurant research I had mentioned earlier um, and that I was bringing together my interest in history and food politics and gender studies. So I kind of pursued that project um, through the end of my undergrad and honors program and my master's and my PhD.
0: It sounds like you have a strong connection to outdoors things. You thought yeah. about <laughs> being a professional kayak kayaker and you were interested in establishing these farms. And so what got you interested in? Public scholarship and how tech can help us with that.
1: Yeah, so part of it had to do with I was always interested in, as I mentioned before, making what I was learning in school or working on my research in graduate school more um, like interesting and available to my family members and my friends who weren't as part of the like kind of academic culture. I also was really interested in experimenting with different forms of writing. So during my master's program uh, with a few other friends, we started the historical cooking project in which we would take old cookbooks and cook the recipes from them and place the recipes and the ingredients in their historical context. So I was doing a bunch of blogging and social media work through that. I, was, uh, I got involved with making different podcasts. I got involved with organizing a lot of events because I was interested. The, the topics kind of changed over time. I kind of shifted from kind of food and feminism to tech and feminism, in part because as there's just like different kind of like political environments that I was living in in Montreal, but also because of what research I could get funding for, to be honest. Um, and so I started writing a speaker series because I wanted to bring in the voices of women and non-binary Um, folks, people of color, kind of voices that are oftentimes marginalized and kind of AI discussions to the forefront in my series. And so uh, that's how I started writing this speaker series. So I was doing a lot of different kind of work in talking to different audiences, working outside of the kind of confines of what's seen as traditional Uh, knowledge mobilization from a university perspective. And so it was kind of because of all these interests that I had and projects I was running or part of uh, that I wanted to kind of put into words different lessons that I learned, issues that had come up through this work, and kind of a theoretical framing of it as well.
0: There's a strong through line in the things that you've shared about considering who's left out and how we bring them in. Yes. (laughs)
1: Did you want me to reflect on that? Sorry. Sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I think one of the things that has always been really important to me also within my teaching side of things is there's a lot of, you know, we hear these phrases of the hidden curriculum and other kind of framings of it like that. But I have really always been invested in this idea of it might have taken me effort to figure out how a certain process works or the requirements necessary to do something. And I don't want others to have to go through that process. So I'm really invested in kind of simplifying that, making it clearer, being transparent. And in doing so, I think it can make it a lot easier for other people to participate that haven't historically been represented in certain kinds of communities, whether they be in certain academic classroom communities, whether they be in kind of like larger industrial conversations around technology or with food politics also, like my past work.
0: You mentioned a few minutes ago about a workshop in a speaker series. Mm-hmm. And how did those lead to the development of the book Engage in Public Scholarship?
1: Yeah, so I didn't initially think I was going to write this book. I run the speaker series, we'll just call it Disrupting Disruptions because the whole title is super long. I didn't think it would be this huge series when I first started to run it. I thought it would be a couple of events and we're hosting our 68th event next week. So it's become quite a, quite a thing um, with too long of a title. But uh, when I started Disrupting Disruptions I needed to find funding for it. And in Canada, a lot of our scholarship and scholarly activities are funded by the Canadian Tri-Council, which is basically federal funding that funds research. And so um, I one of the grants that is available is the Social Science and Humanities Research Council Connection Grant, which basically is a way to organize events or conferences or things like that. But you need 50% matching funding. So it requires that you make connections already before any of these events have happened with other community partners, with other universities, with departments within a university. And so um, I've won about three of these grants to support the series. But in one of the first grants I was writing, I reached out to Concordia University Press because they were um, kind of an up and coming press that had an open access mandate as part of their work. And I asked them, oh, would you contribute $200 towards the series? That's just to give kind of a sense of, I was asking different organizations between $200 or a couple hundred um, dollars usually. And they said, we don't have money to like give you for this series, but would you be interested in writing a book related to your work in organizing it and some of the lessons from the series? And I was immediately just so excited by this idea. I didn't really know exactly how to approach it at first. I didn't have a formalized book proposal, but the um, editors generously met with me. We kind of talked through some ideas. And initially, it was going to be a short book, maybe 50 pages, 60 pages. Uh, The book itself is now a few hundred, (laughs) um, like over 300 pages. But that's kind of where the initial project came from because I had originally been thinking more about kind of my historical research. And within the book, most of the people who have been part of this series or are going to be in the series um, in the future are cited within it. Uh, So it really builds off of a lot of their work as well.
0: So for listeners who maybe haven't seen a copy of the books yet, What would be your elevator pitch or your summary of what engaged Public Scholarship, A Guide on Feminist and Accessible Communication is? Yeah, so
1: it's a book broken into two parts. The first part of the book is kind of talking through some of the challenges of what it means to make scholarship accessible. So it talks about what we even mean by the public, what we mean by um, access. Do we just mean within a disability framework? Disability kind of studies and disability activism framework, or do we mean accessibility in terms of uh, broadband access? Do we mean in terms of the languages being used? All of these kind of components, but also what does access mean for the scholar herself? Who is able to do this work? How do universities support or not support this work? And then kind of thinking through some of the things around, well, what does open access really mean? What are the limits of open access? How can we think beyond that kind of framework itself? Um, So that's the first part of the book. It's kind of thinking through some of these key issues, defining terms. What do I mean by feminist scholarship, accessible scholarship, and so forth? The second part of the book is a series of toolkits that are really practical. So I go through things such as um, different kinds of digital uh, formats that can be self produced or produced with others, Uh, also, non digital, kind of analog, physical formats of scholarship. I have toolkits of how to build websites, how to make a podcast how to uh, make a cartoon or graphic novel of your research, how to work with journalists, how to write op-eds, how to prepare for interviews, and all these different components. And the point of the book isn't to make you feel guilty or try to say you need to try all of these things, but instead it's supposed to offer options, provide resources to point you in further directions as well if you want to continue to build on these skill sets, and hopefully inspire folks to kind of try some of these different techniques. And I think one of the things about the book that I tried to infuse throughout the text is a centering of joy and experimentation. I think as scholars... We're so often, and I don't want to speak for everyone, I don't want to universalize this, but there's kind of a sense of seriousness that we have to be experts in everything we do. But I want to encourage people to experiment and try new formats and to see what is actually fun for them. So many aspects of our job require some drudgery. You know, I love being a researcher. I love being a teacher, but... I think also like what brings me joy, what gets me excited to talk about my research, different audiences, different techniques, and so forth. So I think joy is kind of a current that runs throughout it. And even with the cover, the color of the cover, I even tried to kind of show that. My press was very open to me saying I want this shade of yellow because I want it to feel welcoming and joyful and exciting and encouraging.
0: That was one of the things that struck me right away. I know we're not supposed to judge a book by their by their covers, but we we do convey information through a book cover, and we do receive information from looking at the book cover. And it is a very joyful color. Um, when I got this book from your publisher and I opened the package, I thought, "Oh, this this is so nice." <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of my initial um, experience of it. And when we talk about things like joy and fun. Depending on who's listening, we may start to be taken less serious. Um, And one of the things that you talk about explicitly in the book is that public scholarship, when we make it accessible, when we get rid of jargon, when we're mindful of our language, of who we're talking to, and we really drill down what we're talking about, the academic community may not take us as seriously as scholars, and they may not weight it as heavily When they're considering our value as a scholar. When we're putting joy and fun back in our playfulness, our creativity, our exploration of what it means to do work, we are renewing ourselves. And when we're putting information out there, we're in dialogue with the public. Why does academia take a dim view of a lot of that? Wow, that
1: is a big question. Okay, so I'll try to speak to kind of both parts you're speaking about there. One about uh, the cover and one was trying to show. The other part about what academia kind of puts forward or the belittling of joy. I think part of it is that when it's not taken as seriously, this kind of community building work, this kind of centering care, which I think is really intertwined with joy, it's because in part that's oftentimes feminized labor. It's the same reason I think that we see service work being valued less than research, right? It's associated with oftentimes the work that women and people of color are doing in greater amounts in the university, but this is important work that keeps the university running and functioning. So that's one aspect of it. I think we are oftentimes seeing... Uh, moving goalposts in terms of what is counted as scholarly or important. And oftentimes when different groups of scholars start to do more of a certain kind of work, it's again seen as less serious and less important. I think we get mixed messages as scholars about what a university's priorities are. And there's spokes within the book that I quote uh, for some of their uh, quantitative research on this so, uh, Juan Paul Byrne, um, oh my gosh, I just messed up his name. Juan Alperin's work around kind of looking at what tenure and promotion co- committees take into account. Right. And so, um, looking at, How oftentimes, you know, this kind of public scholarship, the creation of podcasts, even if they're very time intensive, even if they're filled with citations, new research, that's not taken to be the same thing as the single author monograph or other kinds of work, right? So we can see with tenure and promotion committees, hiring committees, typically kind of the peer reviewed journal article or the monograph is what is valued. Um, But at the same time, we're receiving these messages from universities that they care about community work or every university phrases it a bit differently, but, you know, centering community, community outreach, all of this. But they're not rewarding this with tenure, promotion, hiring. They're not putting money and resources behind it. So that's kind of like this mixed messaging that we're getting. Um, And I think also one of the reasons why joy is maybe undermined as well, not only because of its connection to care, but I think some folks might feel threatened by different ways that it creates different kinds of connections uh, with the work. It, because I think when we have this space of joy, and I'm not, I'm not sure I'm fully articulating what I want here, but I think when we have this space of joy It also undermines certain kinds of hierarchies and positions of power in which people can feel really, really um, like that it's really important to their identity to have this kind of hierarchical power over others. And I think joy opens up a space of playfulness that might undermine those hierarchies and make them seem less serious. Um, To address the kind of comments around the cover, Uh, yeah, my press was amazing to work with, not just with the cover, but with the whole design of the book. We wanted it to have a certain feeling in our hands. I was, I was very particular. I sent them over the hex color of what yellow and what blue I wanted. Um, You know, we worked around the font. We want it to be, even though it's not the open dyslexia font, we want it to be, um, Easier to read for folks with dyslexia, um, with kind of a heavier weighting at the bottom, the way that the um, chapters are formatted and stuff. Everything was thought about a lot in terms of the font size, the um, contrast uh, with the page, the color of the type of paper, and all of that was really thought through. Like we wanted the text itself to be quite accessible, and that's also open. It's also available in open access formatting in which you can adjust the font size. Um, and yeah, so that was always part of the design. So uh,
0: yeah, I hope I addressed both parts. You did. Um, on chapter one, at the introduction, at the very top, you have a quote from Audrey Lorde that says, the form our creativity takes is often a class issue. Mm-hmm. How were you mindful of class issues when you were considering what is public's um, scholarship and how we're how we're conveying it. Yeah, so
1: I love that quote because it makes us really mindful of format and how one has the opportunity to communicate one's work, right? Different kinds of outputs, whether they be artistic and creative outputs, or scholarly outputs, or we don't even need to set it up as a um, either or, you can have creative scholarly outputs. Um, But right, they're kind of limited to some of your economic and labor conditions. And so in the um, chapter four, in particular, although this idea is also throughout the book, I really talk about the kind of labor conditions of other scholars. So I myself am a non-tenure track academic. I started off teaching a four-three. So for folks, that's a four courses in the fall term, three courses in the winter term. In Canada, we don't have a spring term; we just call it a winter term because it's so cold here. Um, so I started off teaching a four-three. Now I teach a three-three, but it's basically the same number of students. I just combined one of my courses, the double um, prep. So, yeah, so I have a pretty teaching heavy load. And so the kind of conditions for me to do research and to also mobilize that research, whether it's through journal articles or other forms of scholarship, are going to be different than some of my colleagues who teach a 2-2 or a 1-1 kind of load, right? Scholars are all working in different kinds of labor environments. Many courses are taught by adjuncts. The vast majority within the US and Canada are taught by adjuncts. And so people have really different labor conditions that they're working in. And so that itself is an issue around kind of labor. Um, and then also in terms of class sensibilities around even who has access to go to university or access to pursue studies and research Uh, even if they have the opportunity to go to university or college to even continue that kind of uh, learning afterwards and access to different kinds of scholarly outputs, right? Even if someone was fortunate enough to go to university, they're not probably going to have access to paywall journals after they graduate, right? Most people lose that kind of institutional access. So the book is very, very mindful about labor conditions and questions of kind of class access.
0: A few minutes ago when you were talking about the intentionality of the book design, which was something that I directly benefited from, I do a lot of reading for this job, and this book is so accessibly designed with such readable type that I was able to book your episode more quickly than some of the others where I frankly have to put the book down for a while because when you have a reading intensive job, your eyes get tired. And you can't do anything about that except Mm -hmm. rest. Um, And that directly parallels something that you were talking about in the book, which is we need to shift from the idea that we make accommodations for people Mm -hmm. to we design with accessibility. And this book is an example of it. And my eyes appreciating (laughs) that is an example of it. Tell us about, um, how you came to this mindset and, and what scholars influenced that.
1: Yeah. So, uh, a lot of different scholars and activists within kind of the disability community have been really important. And here I'm really, I just want to say clearly that I'm using the word disabled first. Some people prefer a kind of like people with disabilities and some people prefer people with like disabled person. So, um, Many of the scholars and activists that I cite prefer the kind of disabled person uh, language. So, just as a note. Uh, so, I think there is a variety of just kind of life influences that have brought me to this. Because not all of feminist studies does put disability studies at the forefront, I was lucky to benefit from a variety of colleagues and peers and scholars and mentors. So I TA'd many years for Mary Bunch. I was really lucky and fortunate to work with Christina Crosby when I was at Wesleyan. Uh, She was my professor in some courses, and she's written beautifully about Uh, different work in disability studies and some of my cohort in my undergrad, um, Allegra He-Stout, so she's active within the disability community. I've really benefited from folks like Alice Wong, whose work around disability visibility and her uh, texts have just really impacted my life and my way of understanding the world. I've also been really fortunate sometimes to have been called in. In organizing the speaker series, another scholar said, hey, look, you had a workshop about podcasting, but the person you invited doesn't prioritize making transcripts for her podcast. And I said, thank you so much for mentioning this. Um, You know, it's always hard (laughs) to hear critique, but I took a pause and said thank you because I was very generous of that person with her time to share that with me. And I said, hey, is there someone you would like me to invite? And she said, oh, you've got to invite Alice Wong if you can. And so Alice Wong spoke as part of the series. Um, So I'm really grateful of that interaction. I think part of it is that uh, I want us to think about accessibility within the disability framework, but also beyond that as well. So part of that's drawing from feminist studies. Um, work more broadly. But also I think it's just listening to people saying what they need and trying to see like, okay, how could I make this better? Um, there There are times when someone said, like, you know, I can't come to all these different events because of Shabbat, right? Like, and I hadn't necessarily even considered that when I was scheduling events. So trying to be mindful. And also one thing that this book does talk about is that there will be nothing that is fully accessible to everyone. That doesn't mean that you should just let yourself off the hook and not try at all, but you need to think about what communities you're trying to reach. And I don't say this to give people an excuse to say, well, like, why do I need to reach communities of people who use wheelchairs or blind communities or deaf communities? But instead saying like, okay, well, this event is going to be in English, I can make it more accessible to folks who are English speakers by hiring a professional captioner, which is something that I do for the speaker series events. But I don't necessarily hire captioners um or like translators for folks with different languages because there's always a limitation there's budgetary constraints and so forth right so i think there's always trying to find balance but also being receptive when people say hey i want to participate in this and here's how you can make it better as well
0: you mentioned the scholar who doesn't prioritize making transcripts and um they may be facing the funding barrier that i am Mm -hmm. i don't yet have transcripts and uh it's been on my radar always um for uh because of someone in my personal life it's it's something i couldn't not be aware of um but you mentioned yes that you to launch something we can only uh deal with so many barriers at one time Mm -hmm. in order to get it going because we're working within structures that weren't um accessible in the first place.
1: Mm -hmm, Definitely. And there's some ways to try to create different workarounds, but some of those are learning skill sets too. And so there's also going to be barriers for folks, again, with that kind of that we're all, we all have different kind of labor conditions to learn those skill sets. So for example, there are some ways to kind of have like a workaround. If you have like a professional Zoom account, you can play your audio and enable the auto captioning because it runs Otter AI. So there's kind of like that free Version And then you can kind of have like a not that great transcript and then go through it. Right. So there's like different ways of trying to create workarounds that aren't perfect or creating a bunch of like free trial accounts on transcriptors. But it's it's never perfect. And I think some of the goals, too, with public and accessible scholarship is that um, allowing for those kinds of experimentations to happen as well. Um, And trying to kind of sort out best practices. So in the book and the toolkits part, I kind of share a lot of tips about like what has worked for me and also share. It's not just about my own experiences, though. It really kind of centers a lot of other scholars and artists and creative folks' work of how they have made it work for them. I really... One thing that I really wanted to do with this book was to also celebrate the amazing work that other folks have done in terms of how they've showcased their work, how they've thought through questions of sustainability within their own projects, both from an environmental perspective and also from a labor perspective. So yeah, I really want to use this text to showcase all of these different approaches.
0: I really appreciate how much is collected in one volume. It's it's a resource that can be drawn from as things come up rather than a book that you have to read all in one gulp, um, or, or you could do both. Um, there are a number of different terms that you use in the book that I'd love to go ahead and define for listeners. Um, one is techno-chauvinism. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about what that is? Yeah, for
1: sure. So Meredith Broussard, who um, is a data journalist, has kind of... Um, She's not the only person to use this, but that's where I first learned the term from. And it's this kind of idea that uh, in some ways it's tied to techno-utopianism in this idea that technology will save us all, but it's kind of through the assertion that it will be technology Um, and that a technological fix is always what's needed. So in her own book, She talks about uh, how sometimes you just actually need a simpler system. Like actually what you need is to get physical copies of books to students rather than trying to like get all of these like technological devices.
0: And then in the book, you use the term public scholarship and you use the term public first scholarship. Can you differentiate between those two things for us? Um, sure. Okay. So public
1: scholarship. Oh, (laughs) okay. Sometimes defining terms on the spot is difficult, but yeah, I will do my best. Okay. So, um, I think how I use the terms differently in the book is that, uh, public scholarship is kind of a broader term that can have a lot of different uses. Whereas public first is putting the public as like, not that, not that, you are just expecting that the public is just going to consume all of the knowledge and that you are just the center of all kind of like knowing and information and that you're like giving it out and they're just going to receive it. But instead that the public is actually centered throughout the process earlier on.
0: And with the public first, you talk about an intentionality that the person creating it is not trying to translate academic speak for them, but created the project with the public in mind the whole time.
1: Yes, definitely. (laughs) Thank you for defining it better than I did verbally just now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's not that the scholarship is an afterthought, right? I think sometimes we are encouraged as scholars to think through our research questions, do the research, and then we think about how we're going to share that information, Um, in that kind of linear trajectory. But I would like to encourage folks to think throughout the research process about the communities that they're working with. I intentionally am using the word with here instead of on. So if you work with other humans, of course, it's a little different than if you work with rabbits or uh, like water. Um, But the communities that you're working with and thinking about um, what kind of research is useful to them, um, how to actually share this research throughout the process. And also not just saying like, okay, well, I'm going to write this journal article and, um, oh, maybe I should do something like a blog post, even though none of the community I'm trying to reach has good computer access. Right. So thinking through like what the needs of the community are earlier on.
0: And you, you do a great job in the book of talking about, um, myths about access and about broadband access and about uh, who can have fast internet and who doesn't. There's sort of an idea that everyone rises at the same speed. As Mm -hmm. soon as we get a new form of tech or a quicker delivery of tech, everybody gets it simultaneously. And the lag is tremendous. Mm -hmm. And for some people, uh, the tech doesn't arrive at all.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think... Um. In addition to listening to just amazing scholars such as the Detroit Digital um, Tech Justice League, I kind of messed up their name a little bit there. Um, but run by um uh, Mother Cyborg. Um, so, like, they've done like amazing work to draw attention to this in the Detroit area, but also I live in uh, Canada, and so we have a lot of issues around kind of rural communities and more remote communities having internet access. So, this is constantly a question that's on my mind.
0: I like to go on retreats when I can, and when I'm lucky enough to win a fellowship, I. Uh, I'm always happy when it's somewhere fairly remote. And I know I've told people, all right, I'm not gonna be very reachable. And the response is, oh, you no, know, there's there's Wi-Fi everywhere. And it's interesting because some of the places I go will warn you in advance, you know, you're, you're pretty much going to be off the grid. We yeah. have one office you can come to by appointment to use our computer if you have to, but don't expect that you can be online to do your work. Um, And so having you put it in a book gives um, another layer of credibility to what so many of us have said that, no, we don't have tech access everywhere.
1: Yeah, I, I'm glad it's useful for you, and I think also that during you know the COVID nineteen pandemic. I mean, we're we're still in a pandemic, but during kind of earlier stages when um there's so much attention given to this because school children, right? There are these assumptions that kids had computers at home that they could do online learning, and you saw a lot of families trying to crowd in the parking lot to get free Wi-Fi from a local library or from a chain restaurant, right? That there wasn't the same access to computers, to technology in the same way. You know, some students might have had cell phones, but it's a lot harder to do kind of a online course through your cell phone. You know, students tried to make it work, but it really drew attention to these kind of disparities.
0: So we have to be creative in how we consider what our public scholarship will be, but also how we deliver it, because not everybody will have the same assumed form of access. You mentioned a couple of places in the book that can help bring us into that idea more deeply. One is when you... um, take apart two myths. One is the myth that tech is neutral, Mm -hmm. and the other is the myth that digital is sustainable. (laughs) Would you like to tackle those myths for us here? Yeah,
1: for sure. Okay, so the tech is not neutral thing. Um, I'll go with that one first, and then I'll talk about sustainability. So one thing is that, and this really comes from kind of my work around AI and big data, but we sometimes think about, oh, well, it's machine learning or uh, it's just we don't have a human in the loop anymore. It's just the algorithm is coming up with the conclusion, right? We kind of hear that discourse around a lot of different technologies, but humans built it humans created the data, the questions that were even being asked to create that data were made by humans. And it's not just this idea of like, oh, let's just get better data. Like there's always going to be a human in the loop making some decisions, right? Um, And there's uh, different scholars and activists such as Astra Taylor who write about photomation, which is like this, it basically is this idea that we sometimes think things are more automated than they even are. But basically, all of our systems that are technological are differently embedded within our culture, within our society. And so the kinds of power structures that we see in society are also replicated within tech and in some cases are actually even magnified, intensified um, because of the way that the data is being processed. So tech definitely isn't neutral. Now around questions of sustainability, this comes up um, through a variety of ways. So I'm really interested in archives. My training is a historian, and I'm actually such an archives nerd. I'm even like, I finished my PhD in 2018, but I'm still taking courses in digital archives management because I just love archives so much. And one of the things is that... um, For folks who use archives, sometimes there's this idea of, why isn't everything just digitized? Well, it's actually a lot easier to preserve a piece of paper or a book than actually file formats. If we just look back to um, earlier versions of Microsoft Word or other kinds of word processors, not to like call out that one proprietary platform, but right, our file formats are constantly changing. Sometimes if you go on your computer and you try to open up an old file, it no longer will open. Or if you think about maybe you had records stored on a floppy disk, well, we don't have floppy disk readers anymore. A lot of computers don't have CD or DVD readers anymore. right? And so, and that has been over a really short amount of time. So imagine 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 200, 500 years from now, You know, and all of these changing file formats is a huge issue. Um, in terms of preservation. We also can look to the internet. There are so many broken links. So there's amazing projects such as the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine that tries to create snapshots of the internet at different points. If you've never used this tool before, I totally invite you to do so. It's very cool. Um, But it doesn't capture everything, and so we have all these issues of link rot. So yeah, in many ways, digital can actually be harder to preserve long-term. And then there's the question of sustainability in terms of just like the effort of the person doing this work. So this kind of comes from a lot of work from the digital humanities field. A lot of scholars within that field have drawn attention to, there's usually a lot of excitement at the start of a digital humanities project, such as doing an online mapping project or creating certain databases or building websites showcasing different kinds of research. And so they'll get the initial grant money, but there's not usually money for the project to continue after the first couple years or five years. So who's going to do that maintenance work? Who's going to make sure that the website is still functioning, that the file formats are being updated as needed? Um, And so that's work that Folks like um, the people who run the maintainers network really draw attention to that most of kind of the the work around technology is actually maintenance, but that's not seen as like sexy or exciting, and so it's oftentimes underfunded, and it actually creates a lot of precarity within our systems. So, yeah. And then I also address questions of sustainability around kind of what are the environmental and ecological impacts of. You know, mining metals and materials to create our computers and all of our internet infrastructure as well.
0: In the acknowledgments you thank your tech devices, is is it hard to balance the concern about environmental sustainability with the necessary dependence on tech devices to do public communication? Yes. I, I mean, I would I would say it's a
1: challenge. I also would say that I haven't bought a new computer just for that work. So um, within my acknowledgments, I give a land acknowledgement to Jejoge, Montreal, the Ghani and Gahaga people um, whose land uh, that I'm on right now, um, as well as kind of the lands that I grew up on, such as the Tongva and Keech lands of uh, Southern California, Um, but also so many of our servers and stuff. We don't even know where they're located necessarily, but they're enabling everything. Like everything that we do is tied to the land. Um, I would have my computer for my other aspects of my job. There are some technological devices that I have purchased, such as um, the microphone I use for podcasting and such. But I think that these are kind of like larger systematic change questions. Uh, So the book does touch on it. It cites work by Kate Crawford and others who do things such as look at the anatomy of an AI system and looking at every single component and all the way through. Um, But this requires much larger systematic change in terms of regulation of mining, of reuse of materials, and also uh, getting rid of... Practices in which things can't be repaired and maintained. Um, So yeah, so while the book does touch on those questions and addresses them, um, I think some of the kind of solutions for those challenges are outside of the framing of the book.
0: For sure. Another way that accessibility comes in and it interplays with sustainability is social media. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time that we're taping, um, scholars are watching to see if Twitter will exist when we get up in the morning. Um, but social media has been a way of having um, a public platform of engaging in public scholarship at no cost really to the scholar or to the user. But it's an example of not knowing if the digital work you did is going to be sustainable.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I am so glad that you brought up Twitter and all of the kind of stress around it, especially launching books. As a lot of my platform, right, of connecting with folks through Twitter, it's the way that a lot of scholars are able to communicate communicate across disciplines, across institutions, across the world. Um, But it also shows the vulnerability of relying on corporate-controlled platforms in which, you know, we could be blocked or kicked off, or someone could buy the platform and change everything about it, you know, and so it shows that vulnerability. Um, This is why I also advocate for, but, you know, wouldn't say that people have to do it if it feels overwhelming, but to try to share your work in different places. So, um, For example, like I really have enjoyed using Twitter over the years. It's really helped me build community with other scholars to learn about so many books and research and art. Um, It keeps me constantly fascinated and learning more. Um, But, you know, I also am on other platforms as well, and which I've been happy for because when Twitter has been going through all what's going through, I can still connect with others But yeah, I mean, this is an ongoing issue of when we don't have control over our platforms. So the book does talk about different social media platforms as well in one chapter. But one of the key things with that chapter is that I know, as many people who write about technology know, that the moment you write that paragraph, it's already dated. You know, these platforms will come and go, um, which can be a loss to huge communities that have been built there. Um, but I think the lessons in that chapter transcend individual platforms in particular.
0: And Your book is an example of presenting the information through a number of different methods. The, the book is available in paper form, it's available through open access online. Many of the ideas in the communities that you built were on social media, so some of those are freely available there. It sounds like to do public scholarship in a more sustainable way we have to be mindful of how we can get the information out through multiple methods.
1: Yeah, I would I would agree with you, but that also then you know everything it's a yes and because It also raises the question about like what's sustainable for the scholar herself to maintain her energy levels, you know, (laughs) like, cause this can also be a lot of work and challenge. So it's also not to try, like you're never going to do it perfectly and you won't be able to do it in every format all the time in all ways. I think it's also about being open to the things that aren't working. So for example, with the speaker series, I thought, okay, well, I love podcasts. Sometimes when I, you know, I love to sign up, like maybe many folks listening to this podcast, I like to sign up for lots of events that are being hosted online, but sometimes at the end of the day, I don't necessarily want to watch that event. But sometimes if it's shared on YouTube or other platforms, I can download the audio and listen to it later while I'm doing chores or I'm on a run or something like that with my dog. And so... Um, You know, I thought, oh, maybe people would like to just have a podcast version of the speaker series events. So I worked with one of my research assistants and we created some podcast versions of some of the events with the consent of the scholars who had participated in them. And people didn't like it. They just didn't listen. They wanted to either come to the event or watch the recordings. And so that was an important lesson. We produced a couple of episodes and it was like, okay, this isn't what folks want. (laughs) And so then we let it go. And I think that's also something that can um, maybe lead to more sustainable labor practices too of also acknowledging when things aren't working.
0: And you talk about that in the book um, that the book is really for people who want to think ethically and creatively about their communication strategies and not all strategies are going to get the result that we expected. Um, and also as uh, d- Touching back to what you said a moment ago about the emotional labor, um, you have a quote on page nine that I flagged when I was reading it. Um, You said, as scholar of publishing, Hannah McGregor argues, there is a different feminist practice in saying, I'm going to do this work such that people that have been deliberately excluded from it, it will be there for them versus I'm going to do this extra emotional labor for you because you have some extra right to my time and energy. It's hard when we're doing work that we feel driven to do to find that line, isn't it?
1: I would definitely agree. And I'm glad you brought up that quote from Hannah as well. So I would say that uh, her own podcast, Secret Feminist Agenda, was also really influential in some of my thinking around this book and text. It's cited multiple times Um, Because I really appreciate the way that she thinks through and frames certain challenges in terms of communication. She thinks about the role of anecdote. She thinks about how we use language to connect with others. But yeah, it can be really challenging to find that balance. And I think also certain communities are also um, more likely to be expected to do that care work for others. Um, and have that extra added layer of expectation upon their labor. So trying to find that balance is really
0: key. In the conclusion, you say, how we do the work is the work. What do
1: you mean by that? Yeah, so um, in the conclusion, I cite the person that this came from. And speaking of Twitter, I saw it on Twitter, and I just thought, wow, to me, that was just the most brilliant thing. Because it so succinctly spoke to a lot of the, the issues and ideas that I was thinking about. So I think you can look at different kinds of institutions when we're thinking about things like DEI or EDI. The states of Canada put the acronyms in different orders. But... Right. There will be a lot of institutions that will make claims about wanting to be inclusive or trying to do anti-racist work or stuff like that. But then their institutions themselves aren't set up in ways that actually support the people doing that labor. And so, that, so that's like one kind of example of um, having the emphasis on the work being like an anti-racist outcome. But the actual practices of getting there aren't actually supporting that work. So this is something that I think through all the time. So for example, with uh, feminist studies institutions at universities, are they institutions that teach feminism or are they feminist institutions in terms of their labor practices, who they support um, their programming and all of that? I think what I'm really trying to get at is that it's not just about trying to get to a certain outcome it also is really important in how you are trying to achieve that outcome, that you need to be thinking carefully about power, about practices, all the way through. It's not just about the final output.
0: And you talk about that in the book, that you're encouraging us to have a thoughtful engagement with communications technology and publishing, and that You do have practical solutions. You do outline for us uh, what accessibility is, what feminism is, and also to let us know that nobody has all the answers. Mm -hmm. Um, How is engaging with it as important as doing it? Mm,
1: Yeah. Okay. I like that framing of it. Uh, So yeah, so I think I'll speak to kind of the first part and then the second part as I'm continuing to think through that question. So, okay. And now I've lost the first part of the question. Okay. I'm coming back. It's coming back to me. Um, Okay. So how is the
0: engaging with it different than the doing it? Right? Yeah. Okay. And your emphasis through the book that it's about bringing us into thoughtful engagement with it. Yes, you offer us tools and ways we might go about it, but bringing us back to the thoughtful engagement, the intentionality and the design of what we're doing.
1: Yeah. Okay. So part of it is, I think if we can even look at the word choice itself, there's a reason I didn't call it scholarly knowledge mobilization. Um, because, And this touches on something that I mentioned earlier. I don't want it to be about just, or like that it's not just like science communication or research communication. Those things are all under the category of engaging in public scholarship, but they're only part of it. I think when we have this framework of engagement, it's about, it's not just a one-way communication of I have knowledge and I'm transferring it to you, right? It's about being receptive. It's about giving take with different communities, listening to different voices and hearing from those communities. Uh, So I think that itself shows that aspect of process and that it's continuous. It's not that you just do it once. It's not that you just release this blog post and that's it, right? It's that it's an ongoing continual
0: practice. And for you, it's a reflective practice too. You when you release it in one way, and you think, "Oh, let's do a podcast version." Then people are like, "Nope, we don't want it as a podcast." Yeah. And for for me, um, I've adjusted how I do the blog copy for the episode several times, as in a reflective process back to accessibility um, information that I've gotten through my DMs, frankly, and as I as I continue to try to. Uh, uh, be responsive and be in thoughtful communication. I have to keep trying to adapt and and take in that feedback and try to produce something that is reflective and responsive at the same time. And so it's it needs to be this ongoing um, dialogue.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you, and I think what you just described about your own process too reflects that kind of vulnerability that it takes, right? Being open and receptive to feedback and. That kind of dialogue can be a little scary sometimes, right? It can feel, um, I mean, I already use the word vulnerable, but it can feel very vulnerable to hear different people's takes on what you're doing. Um, but I think there's a big power in that vulnerability, and it's something to actually be celebrated and respected um, to allow ourselves to be in a position of not acting as if we know everything all the time and are willing to learn and grow. And I mean, that's something that I would actually say is a value I wish universities would encourage more. Um, And that would actually be about true ongoing learning for all of us in what we're doing, whether it's through our own research practices themselves or whether it's in how we're communicating about that research.
0: We're starting to run short of time. So I want to ask you, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I hope people feel excited
1: to actually try some of the different techniques that I talk about in the book. If you never open the book or click on the link for the book, um, I mean, I hope this episode gets you excited to do that. Um, But if you don't, think that public scholarships for you, first of all, I'd ask you to maybe take a step back and think, why is that? What are the things that you're worried about? What are the things that you would actually maybe be able to derive from it? What could be exciting for you? So to have that kind of pause if folks are excited about some of the things we've talked about, I really encourage you to even just you know click on the link for the open access version, see if that's for you, and feel um, encouraged to try things out without the stakes being too high, to just feel maybe see what sparks your joy, what sparks your interest, what gets you excited. I really want folks to kind of think about where can you find the joy and excitement that keeps you coming back every day to your scholarship and your research, especially after the last couple of years, which I think have been very hard for many of us. How can we recenter the things that first brought us to the love of our research and the love of our work?
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Alex Ketchum, and telling us about your new book, Engage in Public Scholarship. A guidebook on feminist and accessible communication. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.